All right, everybody. I got Aaron Warbritton on from The Hunting Public. And if you haven't checked them out, you definitely should. Um, we had Zach Farinball on earlier this year, and he gave a wealth of knowledge on ground hunting and bump and dump style hunting. And uh, today we're talking to Aaron, and we're going to be running through the pre-rut and the rut. And um, Aaron does a ton of public land hunting. So it's really a lot of new places, new areas, new strategies, new techniques, and, and new ground. So um, does that kind of cover it, Aaron? Or what else do you want to what else do you want to include in your intro? Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> All right. Um, so as far as like um, uh, the pre-rut, so let's just start there. The uh, if we're looking at the pre-rut, when do you, I know what I have in my head, but when do you really like kind of figure out, all right, the pre-rut's about kicking off. Like what's the date where you really start keying in on like pre-rut strategies? Well, to be honest, I think it's starting right now. Um, okay. in, in the areas where we hunt anyway, it's kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got, I'm fighting off the end of a cold still. You got the but, Rona? Uh, no, I don't have the vid, man. We're all good. Um, uh, I'm just fighting off a cold, so I'm just eating cough drops just like candy all day long. Nice. But anyway, I think the pre-rut starts in early October. After the velvet comes off, bucks, they start getting more and more territorial every day as it approaches Halloween. They start sparring. They're making rubs. They're making scrapes. They start changing their bedding locations. They move in closer to doe groups as it as it gets closer to Halloween. And this isn't, in my opinion, this isn't something that's like a light switch. This is something that is a progression that happens for like a month before Halloween. And now I'm talking like Midwestern states, <coughs> you know, your your traditional rut time frame, which, is, which takes place in November. So yeah. with that said, I think the pre-rut is <laughs> encompasses basically all of October. There's and there's different phases within that. I feel like. Okay. So, yeah, for my personal opinion is like I really I guess I base it around like my hunting tactics. So, it's October 6th today. I'm still kind of just hunting like a food sources, entry and exit routes to food sources. Um and for me, I really start like targeting like pre-rut strategies around like October 15th or so is when I really give it a go. Um, so then you mentioned like the, the phases. So how do you, how would you break that down? Well, um, <clears throat> this time of the month, the first, uh, let's just say the first 10 days of October, we'll just break it into three parts, you know, the yeah. middle or the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of October. This time of the month, bucks, uh, some bucks are still in bachelor groups, but they're starting to rub a lot more. They're starting to spar, like on the cold fronts and whatnot that we had. I mean, on October 1st, we had a heck of a cold front yeah, pushed down through the Midwest. Yeah, finally warming and, back uh, up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bucks, bucks were definitely up moving on their feet. Um the video that we just posted tonight, actually, Ted's buck that he shot was yeah. sparring with a mature buck when he shot it. So, oh, I haven't watched it yet. That's <laughs> all right. I got to check that one out. Yeah. Um, yeah, do it's you, a good one. Do you think, um, like, any, do you think cold fronts can, can be like 
too much of a temperature decrease. You think that's possible? No, I don't. No, I don't think so. Unless it's a, unless it's extreme. That's the only time when I see uh, deer movement really subdued is like extreme weather. So for our part of the country, right now, if it was ninety degrees, for example, that would be extreme heat for this time sure. of the year. Okay. <laughs> And in contrast, if it was 20 degrees, that would probably be extreme cold for right now. Okay. But, I mean, just for for context, like, we dropped from, like, 75, 80 degrees down to, like, highs in, like, the mid-50s. Is that – Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's perfect. Yeah, so that's that 20 – like, a 20-degree drop. Yeah, and it – yeah. I, I personally liked it just because it got rid of all the mosquitoes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, anyway, yeah, back to your phases, man. Yeah, that first part of October, if you get a cold front or something like that, it will definitely kickstart the buck activity and, and the pre-rut activity. Um, even in early October, though, <laughs> we're always we're always looking for buck signs and just general fresh deer signs. But we do occasionally find, you know, rubs on exit trails leading out of bedding areas in early October. We find scrapes. Uh, the guys were actually hunting over some scrapes, and I was as well on the first that day of the cold front, and everybody saw buck. You know, some of them were working the scrapes. Some of them were just feeding in the general area. But, you know, a scrape, I, I think I kind of classify rubs and scrapes as pre-rut signs. Yeah. So, oh, for sure. With that said, uh, you know, the bucks aren't, they're not getting real active, hot and heavy, but you can certainly still have luck calling and decoying this time of the month, especially on a cold front day like that, because bucks are starting to become more and more territorial. We filmed, uh, we filmed a couple of mature bucks like fighting full bore on October 7th. I don't know what that, it's probably been five years ago now in Iowa. So it it can definitely happen. It's just, uh, and it definitely seems to be magnified by those cold front days. And as you move into the middle part of the month, our strategy doesn't really change. We're always hunting bedding areas, but the scraping activity really, really picks up. And, uh, we're always targeting now, now whether it's early October or mid October, we're all, we're always targeting that pre-rut sign next to a bedding area. Okay. Uh, because that's, that's where we feel like we're going to have the best chance of getting a shot at a buck during the daylight. We're not as worried about that pre-rut sign along the edge of like a open bean field or anything like that, especially if it's on public land and it's real accessible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So the reason, and just to explain that a little bit more, or at least this is my assumption is the reason you're, you're targeting those, those scrapes or rubs or whatever pre-rut sign you're after at that point along those bedding areas is just cause it's, it's closer. So when they do stand up, say they only stand up 20 minutes before dark, they can hit that right away. Yeah. And okay. <laughs> let me back up. Cause this is a, this is a helpful tip. I feel like in early October, that sign isn't near as prevalent as it is at the end of, say, you know, conversely at the end of the month. Yeah. So when you find it, when you find like uh, a real aggressive set of rubs, a big 
fresh track or a scrape right on the edge of a bedding area in early October, that's something that we really pay attention to. Because at that time of the month, mature bucks are not ranging very far. They're still oh, pretty, yeah. you know, they, sure. they have found kind of that, that small area where they feel safe and they're trying to put on weight before the rut. So they're doing a lot of feeding. They're doing a lot of rubbing. Um, but they're doing it in a very small location usually, or a very small area. Yeah. So when you find that sign in early October that's right next to a bedding area, there's a real good chance there's a buck in it right now. Oh, man, that's a phenomenal now, That's uh, that's a phenomenal <laughs> tip. I I never thought about it like that before, but, yeah, it's that makes so much sense just because, like, they're not ranging, right? They're not, they're not running two, three, four miles looking for a hot doe yet or anything. They're just in there right. marking it up going, Hey, this area is mine. Stay out. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. And their velvet hasn't been off terribly long. So any fresh rubs or fresh scrapes that you're seeing are, you know, this year's sign. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and because they haven't had as much time to lay a lot of that sign down, see, that's the, that's kind of the issue that you run into in the early part of the rut, like early November, or the late pre-rut in late October is if you're in a high, high buck density area or high deer density area period, there's going to be a lot of that pre-rut sign out there. And it's going to start to get confusing because there's going to be scrapes along the edge of the field. There could be scrapes in the corridors leading to the, the food sources. There could be scrapes along the edge of the bedding areas because they've just had more time to lay down all that sign. Mm-hmm. That's why it's real important in the, in the first part of October, if you find that hot sign to set up in, uh, in or on it. Yeah, no, I, I'm just, I, I'm thinking this last weekend, Saturday and Sunday, I made some major mistakes. Now that you're saying that, <laughs> uh, I found, I found, well, the first, I found a nice scrape um on saturday morning when i was out hunting um and uh, i i just i i scouted it i found the scrape at like 10 a.m on my wake out my way out of the woods and just kind of scouted it figure out where i wanted to sit and then just marked it on on x and then later i checked at like 11 a.m i stopped by another piece and i found a decent scrape maybe 15 feet from my truck but the that parking lot that I parked at is kind of like it's tucked back. It's an easement in between two houses. It looks like someone's driveway. So there's like really people who don't really know it exists. It's unmarked too. I thought I was trespassing the first time I took it. And then I ended up bumping huh. into the warden in the parking lot. So I knew I was good. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I ended up after that. I like, I found that scrape 15 feet from my truck and just kind of went to explore this little area um, right, right around a marsh. And I ended up jumping a really nice buck. Um, I got a quick glimpse at him. He was probably like 130 or greater, maybe 130 to 150. I, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I jumped him right out of the bed and he was maybe 50 yards from that, that scrape that I found right out my outside my truck. Yep. And that's yeah. another thing that we noticed in, in the early part of October. Um, you know, we used to do that all the time. I would always overthink it that first week of season because that's when Iowa's season comes in is October one. Yeah. We hunt, we've hunted lots of other States during that time as well. Um, however, there's just not a lot of hunting pressure in the woods in most places that we go, even States with higher hunter numbers 
like, uh, you know, Wisconsin or PA or Michigan, there still just isn't a, isn't a lot of hunting pressure during that time. No. The bucks haven't been pressured to that point. So that's, that's something, that's a good tip that you just brought up is uh, don't walk past that hot sign, especially if it's located near a bedding area of any sort, because those bucks may not have been hunted yet. You know, they may not have had hunting pressure force them into the back corner of, of the area that you're hunting. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes total sense. And I, pure experience this year, um, Wisconsin, I, that's where I'm at, open September 12th, super early. And I couldn't go to a parking lot without another vehicle in it. But yep. September 14th, or the following weekend, I should say, September 19th, I, cu- I could go to any parking lot and there was no one there. Everyone wanted to hunt opener right. and that was it. They're going to hunt opener, then they're going to take off a month or month and a half, and then they're going to be in there during Halloween. end of October, beginning of November, I'm assuming, right? Yep. No, yeah. Oh, yeah. It just, it's, it's a kind of like you said with, with, with the pre rut, it's a steady progression from mid October to, uh, to gun season of, of vehicles in the lots. So, yeah. no, I, I, now that you say that, I have some, I have some areas that I, will be hunting this weekend specifically because I found a couple of scrapes and I know where a couple others are likely opened up and I'll probably sit there and see what I see. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, awesome. so yeah. And you mentioned like real aggressive rubs, like, is there a difference? I, you know, I'm not really much of a rub guy myself, but like, is there a difference between just like uh, a one-off rub? And I mean, when you say aggressive, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> I'm looking at a rub that something got a hold of and thrashed the crap out of. I mean, it, or like a really wide tree, really high on the tree, something that they have, you know, uh, I'm trying to find the best way to describe it. I saw one of them tonight on when we were hunting. The ground was pawed up underneath of the tree, and it was a sapling that was about the size of my thumb, but it was completely wrecked. I mean, the thing, there was hardly any tree left. Like, there was pieces of it laying all over the ground. Okay, yeah. That was a buck that got angry, you know. He was he was not just casually rubbing his antlers on the tree and some bark was falling off of it. That thing got angry and was thrashing it pretty hard. And they'll, right. all of them will do that, but <laughs> if I see that in, in a bunch of them in one area, that's a, that's usually a good sign. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that buck's pretty territorial and he'll be around. Right. He won't. And, and like I said, that first week, October, they're not ranging very far yet, but as you, as you move into the middle of the month, you know, typically by the 15th of October. So we've had a couple cold fronts come through by that time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's whenever scrapes start popping up everywhere. You know, day yep. by day from the 15th to the, to the end of the month, or from the 10th even to the end of the month, scrapes are just becoming more and more visible in all these different places. And if you run a camera over them, you'll start to see some nighttime buck activity pop up on some of those scrapes. <clears throat> and, and I'm sure, I know that you've done this before. You run a camera through the whole month of October and then, in the middle of the month, all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you, you have a big buck show up on one of those scrapes. And yep. then the next week, he's, he's back again. 
and then the next week he's back again. And then and maybe you pick up another couple bucks, you know, as that camera soaks over that scrape. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing, in my opinion, is those mature bucks are starting to make their rut circuits. Okay. And, kind of their, their route that they like to take. Right. They're, try, they're starting to go to the different doe bedding areas within their range and mark them up. They're, they're starting to make that circuit. And that's why you're picking them up on a scrape at 3 a.m. You know, I might, we might run a camera over a licking branch from September 1st through November 1st. And we've, we're going to pick up all kinds of new bucks in that second half of October. Usually in the middle yeah. of the night because they're not resident bucks to that spot. You know, I mean, they're, they're ranging out and showing up on that camera. I mean, they may be betting 500 yards from the thing or a half a mile from the thing, but they're starting to make those loops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, prime, prime yeah. example. <laughs> a couple years my ago. Opinion, anyway. Oh no, I, I, I've seen it happen. And, and, you know, one disclaimer, I think, like, and I know you agree with this as well is that every buck has a different personality, right? And every right. area is different. So it's just a general, like we always talk in like general rules of thumb. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, to your, to your point, I had a, I had a buck that I had on camera in early September and then um, I knew where a scrape was that he'd likely hit. And he hit that about like four or five o'clock on a Monday night. And uh, the next morning I had him a mile and a half away at like 4 a.m. on a different scrape. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but that was in like, that was in mid-October, just like you're saying. So he covered a mile and a half in, you know, 12 hours. Who knows what he did in between. Um, Right. But yeah. And then I got to look at him, you know, a few days later in that, you know, what was interesting is, you know, I got it. Like I said, I got a, got a good look at him at about 60 yards a few days later near that second scrape that he hit a mile, like a mile and a half away, kind of from a bedding area that I, that I know he was using. Um, yeah. But he came right out of a doe bedding area and he was working his way right towards the scrape, you know, in October 20th or something like that. So, yep. um, no, I, yeah. Uh, so then, so then when you, when you find, so, so say you miss that hot sign, right. And in early October and it's getting like October 20th, or you just don't have the time off or life's just hectic and whatever you go out October 20th. And instead of seeing, you know, three scrapes, all of a sudden you're looking at like 20 or something like that. How are you figuring yep. out like, like where to go from there? Um, it always relates back to betting uh, for okay. me. It's, it's always going to be in the security cover. And uh, now that's because I'm, I'm trying to shoot a mature buck. Now, if you're, if you're not trying to shoot one of those and you're just trying to shoot a deer of any kind, then your strategy is going to be a lot different. Yeah. You know, I, I would rather go out there and see one or two deer that are the deer that I want to shoot than 20 of the other deer. But I'm not yeah. saying that that's right or wrong. That's just my preference. And then if something smaller shows up, I might shoot it because I'm kind of opportunistic in that sense. But <laughs> I'm trying to yeah. I'm trying to hunt for a mature buck most of the time. So, sure. yeah, no, I could. <laughs> I mean, 
uh, being being in your kind of position with with the hunting public and having so many tags across the country you know in the time frames that you guys i mean you guys have extremely aggressive time frames like hey i'm gonna go to this new new state and i got six days and i'm gonna kill a mature buck <laughs> you know like most people are like yeah give me give me a couple years and a month each year you know um so I could definitely see how you guys are a little bit more opportunistic. I would, I would be too. Oh yeah, I am for sure. I mean, if a buck shows up and he starts getting me excited, I'm probably going to shoot him nine times out of 10, regardless <laughs> of whether he's a mature buck or not. But that does not mean that I'm not in there trying to kill a mature buck. Yeah. You know, I feel like, I feel like you could put yourself in a situation where there's a lot of fresh shine away from the bedding area where you could see a lot of deer but your likelihood of seeing a mature buck is it goes down in that those types of scenarios where I'd rather be is right up against the bedding area or in some sort of a, a transition area that is full of like, like that high stem count security cover. Yeah. Some sort of a secure corridor where that buck feels comfortable moving during the day. Um, ideally, and in most cases, that's that's either adjoining the bedding area that he's in, or it's in the bedding area itself. Um, so that's where I find myself hunting more times than not. And I guess to to answer your question is, I ignore that sign for the most part that's out along the edge of a of a ag field or something like that. Okay. Or even if it's in open oaks and they're eating acorns. And there's scrapes and rubs everywhere throughout there. If I don't think that there is a buck bedded within 150 yards of that sign, that, you know, like a mature buck of some kind, then I'm going further. I'm I'm searching deeper in there for where the thing is at right now. Yeah. So one of the things I come across personally is when I'm, when I'm doing that um, and I'm like, all right, is this the scrape that's far enough back or do I need to keep going? How do you, yeah. how do you, how do you manage that in your head? Cause you know, the grass is always greener another 50 yards. There's gotta be a, Oh yeah. I mean, you can tell yourself <laughs> that <laughs> I've done that. I've, I've, I've overthought every single hunting situation I've ever been in. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's certainly a battle that I'm always fighting with myself when I'm in there. It's like, Oh man, this looks fresh and this could be good, but it's only half a mile in and I've got another half a mile I could go. So it's like, do you set up here or do you keep going? Um, that's a tough call, man. Uh, right. The best advice that I could give that seems to work most often, um, is if there's bedding cover real close to that sign and it's really fresh sign, I will sit there um, more often now, especially okay. the more often now than I used to. I used to just blitz by it. And I was just like determined to get to the most remote spot on the property that I could get to. And mm-hmm. that did work occasionally, but a lot of times I just blew right past them. Um, you know, and then I saw him coming out that night or spooked him or, or went in another half mile to a mile and didn't get into anything. I've done that a bunch of times too. So 
the best approach I think is if you have the time, that's the big kicker is to set on that hot sign next to that bedding area. If it doesn't work out, then go in further on the next time. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then just chip away at it. And that's exactly what we're doing on a spot right now. Um, the spots that I hunted tonight, I got in there, scouted the edge of a bedding area. I found a bunch of fresh rubs along the edge of this willow bedding and a big scrape right there. So we sat it, <laughs> saw a pile of does and, and some little bucks, but, uh, nothing, nothing mature. Okay. <clears throat> nothing mature came out of that bedding area. So tomorrow night, when we go back to hunt that same area, we're going to go in, you know, 400 yards deeper okay. to the next bedding area that's more remote and we're going to check it for sign and if that doesn't work then we're going to move to the next one and so on and so yeah. forth so <laughs> not to not to throw a huge wrench in it and make you overthink it again but what about like what if tonight just wasn't the night and that mature buck what he was in the area he just held tight you know until a half hour after dark that's possible um but from what I've from what I've seen in uh, observing bucks like uh, within the bedding areas, most of the time, I think under most conditions, mature bucks are up on their feet before dark. Now, okay, they may not move but twenty yards, but they're usually up and doing something. Now, that's not that, like you mentioned earlier, you brought up a good point. Mature bucks, are, especially mature bucks, they have different personalities. They behave a different way um, from one to the next. But the scenario that, and this is all very situational, so take this with a grain of salt. Yeah, oh, the for sure. The scenario that we were, we were in tonight, there was a very thin bedding area like the, this thing could probably hold a deer or two in it and there were sign around it and we could see most of it and we could see the exits leading out of it we Got felt it. like when we set up that we were within 100 yards of a deer in that bedding area got it because it's so not you very know, big yeah no so you right. know if he, if he was in there you would have seen him well as long as he stood up if he was in there and he stood up we were going to see him and there was seven or eight does and two small bucks that went right past the front of that bedding area, you know, 30 minutes before dark, which is usually, you know, a big confidence booster for a mature buck. If they watch mm-hmm. multiple deer pass them in a bedding area like that, heading out towards a food source or wherever, some sort of destination, they are much more apt to stand up and then curl in behind them on the way out. If they don't have those deer going forward, then in in front of them, then they, you know, they aren't alerted to any danger that's ahead of them. So they're less apt to to move in very far during daylight. But in this situation, that's why I'm just talking about this specific night. All these deer came past the bedding. A few of them looked in there, but, I never saw anything stand up out of there. I never saw one come out of there and we could see right into it. So I just don't think anybody was home today, but I could be wrong. I will say though, that in most cases when we're hunting these bedding areas in October, 
um, mature bucks are up on their feet. They're, they're moving. They're doing something well before dark. Not every time, but certainly more often than not. They just don't. That's the thing I think, uh, I think people get hung up on is that they, they think that they basically just live underground until two hours after dark. I think that they just, they move within a very, very tiny area during the day. Just from my observations over the years. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, what Dan Infall preaches as well too. Right. And it make I mean, it makes sense, you know, if you get that old and you're, you're that smart and, you know, you kind of want to send, you know, send out the little boys and the does out there to check for danger first, you know, and then, okay, if, if, if they're not, you know, getting shot at or, or getting chased off by coyotes or whatever, I guess it's safe for me too. you know, kind of gives them that reassurance, like you're saying. And I, um, you know, I don't have a ton of experience in like the early <coughs> season seeing, seeing big bucks right outside bedding areas. I I've never done, I've done all right to be, I mean, I've killed a couple good bucks in early season, but, um, and it was usually within, you know, 50 to a hundred yards of a bedding area, I guess now that I think about it and look back on it, I honestly didn't know both, uh, both of them that I killed were, I didn't even know they were bedding areas. Right. I just kind of was like, Oh, this is a good spot. And, (laughs) and kind of figured it out after the fact when they stood up, you know, I think that's another thing that that's really helped me is uh, as far as trail camera goes, like, you know, say it gets dark at 7 PM and I'm getting daylight activity at like 6:15 or six, then I know that I'm like, that camera is right next to a bedding area or it's real yep. likely that it's real close, you know? And yep. I really started to use that trick to figure out, okay, well, these are probably where these bedding areas are. If I'm getting daylight photos of these deer, you know, at this time frame. And same with that's exactly what the way we we go about it too. It's like, you know, if if you're getting daylight activity earlier in the season, earlier in the pre rut even, you're usually real close to where they're they're living or where they're bedding. Yeah. Okay. Because Um, they're just not ranging that far in in a lot of situations yet. I mean, that's all going to change in the next two weeks, obviously, like we discussed earlier. But. Mm Hmm. So, okay. Um, kind of switching gears. So we've kind of like hit scrapes. I mean, do you do, I guess a couple, you can fire through these real quick. Do you ever do mock scrapes on public land? And do you have thoughts on like community scrapes versus like satellite scrapes? Um, yes, we do mock scrapes occasionally, depending on the situation. Sometimes we'll, we'll make one. We, we do more mock scrapes for trail camera purposes. Okay. And we do to actually hunt over. Um, and we don't do a lot of them. So that's definitely not a big part of our strategy, but I mean, they definitely do work. So I don't want to discourage anybody from trying that. Um, as far as, uh, classifying scrapes that we find in the woods, I am, I'm always concerned about finding one that is in a secluded remote area along some sort of a tight corridor where, that buck can move and feel safe during the day. That's, those are the scrapes that I will, that I would ideally like to find. And if it's 
the best case scenario that I know of is if you're in one of those spots with a corridor with security cover that links two bedding areas together, say it's within a couple hundred yards of both bedding areas and there's scrapes along that corridor, that's usually a really good spot. Um, because those scrapes are there because it's linking the movement between those two bedding areas. It's, yeah. They're not scrapes that are linking movement between a feeding area and a bedding area or even scrapes that exist along the edge of a feeding area. Yeah. But they are, those scrapes are in the security cover linking two bedding areas together. Therefore, in my mind, those are going to be hit during the daylight more often than the other ones. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, one thing I've really started, I, I wholly wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's just kind of to the same preface of, you know, mature deer would rather stay in the security cover than be out in the field. Right. And yep. if they're really looking for, for does in the pre-rut, I, I feel like, you know, late October, they really start going, all right, where's the first doe to come into asterisk? Like, where is she? I'm looking for her. I'm trying to find her. And that's not, you know, really that's not in a food source that's in the bedding areas. They're going to run, you know, those downwind sides of those bedding areas or just run right into them and check them. And they're going to hit those scrapes outside those bedding areas. Cause that's where the does are going to also, um, kind of go over there and pee and say, Hey, I am in estrus, you know, come find me type of thing. Um, right. and I feel like I've, I've really started to, on the pieces that I've hunt, I moved around for a lot of years for like 12 years. I didn't hunt the same piece for more than two years. Um, just life happened all the time. And I really started to settle in and I feel like I play connect the dots, <laughs> um, with, uh, with on X where I go, okay, there's bedding areas here, 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 and here. How are these bucks going to go from one to the other? And nine times out of 10, that's, I find a scrape between the two somehow some way right yeah um so i mean we're talking a ton about bedding areas and one of the things i had a big problem with um just really when i was really getting into hunting is like people talk about bedding areas but what what is a bedding area in your own words can you like describe that for somebody who really hasn't like figured one out or or is having trouble finding them hmm you touched on it a, a little bit earlier with the stem count, high stem counts. Yeah, and, and that's definitely a good thing to look for. I'm, I'm just trying to paint this with a broad brush here because bedding areas can look way different depending on the situation. You know, if you're in, yeah. if you're in big woods terrain, for example, uh, you know, rolling hills with lots of timber, you may not have a lot of that high stem count stuff. It just may be lots of mature timber with some very subtle transitions between habitat types within that timber. Yeah. And bucks may bed, um, they may bed more towards like the leeward side of that topography. Sure. So, and out on points of ridges and such, just depending on a variety of factors. So the best advice I could give anybody um, this is broad is whatever area that you have to hunt, go in there, walk around and actually jump the deer, jump deer up, find deer beds, and then think about why they're there and where the wind is blowing, what the conditions are that day. 
And the more often, the more you can do that, the quicker you're going to start picking up on tendencies that the deer in your area have as far as bedding goes. Does that make sense? Yep. No, that's, that's how, that's how I started learning really was like, Oh, I jumped deer out of here at noon. Okay. They must be riding here. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And and Um, to your point earlier about the ridges, we had cat, I had Catman on earlier. um, And John was talking about how like in some of his, his areas, it's just like a little ditch, like just a slight change in topography where they can dump down into a ditch and hide from everything else, but they still got some wind blowing in there so they can smoke. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, it all depends on where you're where you're at. I mean, I hunted a marsh uh, tonight where there's lots of like canary grass, there's cattails, there's willows, and they'll bed in any one of those areas if it's if it's thick and secure enough. Um, that's the thing. Uh, John Eberhardt said this uh, last year, and it made a lot of sense. You know. We were already kind of practicing the same thing, but I'd never really put words to it. But he said, you know, I like to think about how I would move around the area without getting detected by other humans. It's like, how would you move through that area? And where would you stay during the day to never be seen by anybody? And if you you start thinking like that, you'll start finding them. Because deer don't want – that's the thing deer go out into all sorts of open areas at night where we are traversing back and forth during the day. They could care less because we're not there in the middle of the night, but during the day, that's when they're most vulnerable, obviously, because that's when we can hunt them. So they're going to put themselves in spots where uh, we can't get at them, where they're not going to be bothered all the time especially a mature buck. Like if you mm-hmm. do, if a mature buck is bedding in a, in a location near a, a main access trail and people are constantly spooking him off that spot, he's not going to bed there very long. He's going right. to move somewhere where he's not getting bothered. And a lot of times that means in a remote location in that high stem count type of growth, uh, in a spot where he can see, hear, smell, you know, danger coming from a distance, just in an area where they, they can use their senses to survive during right. the day. Yeah. I know that's really broad and that's very, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a tough, it's a tough subject to broach because it's, it, it varies so greatly depending on the situation, but that's the yeah. one common factor. No, I remember, um, you know, you didn't do it this year cause of COVID, but you guys had, like last year in 2019 you guys did those spring workshops right yeah you went out there and i remember watching one of them and uh it was a i I forget the exact parcel you might be able to to lock this one down but you got there and you said you pulled out a map and you said all right where don't you go and um it was kind of like a farm area and he was like well we never hunt the opposite hillside right across from the house and you're like, okay, well, let's go look over there. And you walk in there and it's just like deer bed, deer bed, deer bed, deer bed. And they're just sitting there watching the farm. Yep. Yeah. And it's just kind of those. Yeah, private land is usually easy to figure out very, very quickly because <laughs> they can, you know, 
whoever's hunting a piece of private land has control over the hunting pressure aspect of it. Yeah. Like there's, there's not, they know who hunts there. It may only be them hunting. So it's mm-hmm. pretty easy that you just hand them a map and you and you ask, you know, when you're, when they're there, where the, how they access, where their stands are and all those places. And, and this only goes for folks that are having trouble harvesting deer on their property. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that sit the same stands year in and year out and, and shoot mature bucks on private land because they're in great spots. Mm-hmm. But what, when we get calls for the consulting portion of our business, it's usually from somebody that's got private land that is struggling to see mature bucks during daylight and they're hunting it regularly, you know? So when you go into those, it's like, yeah, just show us on a map where you don't ever go. And nine times out of 10, we just walk to that spot and there's all sorts of signs. Yeah. (laughs) And then it's just like, all right, well, you got to figure out how to enter and exit these areas and, and not throw your sign everywhere. (laughs) Yep. Um, That's it. That's cool. I didn't know you guys did that. Like, I didn't know that was part of your business. That's awesome. Yeah. We don't do it as much as we'd like to anymore just because we got so many irons in the fire, but I love (laughs) doing that consulting stuff. That's really fun when you can go into a property with somebody that, that is, um, you know, struggling or scratching their head and you can dive in there with them and just offer some like different perspectives and whatnot on the, on the property. Yeah. No, I, (laughs) that's really fun. It, it, I, I agree. And I think that's something that kind of ties a lot of hunters together, which is that new adventure aspect of hunting, you know? And I think that really ties all of you THP guys together, which is just like, you love to go look at new places, find out new places and break them down and, and try them out. That's my favorite thing to do. I mean, I, I used to hunt occasionally I'd find like a specific buck on public land that I would want to hunt. And I've done that a few times where I like dedicated portions of my season to a specific deer but I got burned out on that real quick just because I, I'm constantly obsessed with learning about how deer, you know, behave in these different environments. Yeah. And even in, even in Iowa, I got, you know, 12 different public areas within three hours of my house. And every single one of them has different scenarios, has different situations, and the deer use the properties differently. So you're learning something and then you're able to compare them all, you know, and, and that's when you start to see trends develop like, well, yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, bucks behave this certain way in these type of conditions or whatever, Yeah. you know, and that's definitely not the case all the time, but you're just always picking up little tidbits of information when you're looking at new stuff nonstop. Mm-hmm. No, I have it's yeah, more experience sure. and it's, it's it's super fun do you ever find yourself uh forgetting like real basic stuff like oh my god how did i forget that oh yeah all the time (laughs) yeah my biggest weakness is is i overthink things i mean i (laughs) that's my my issue man i mean that yeah i a a lot of times i'm i'm an attention to detail person a lot of times i'm able to pick up on these little subtle maybe pieces of sign in the woods that other people will miss, but I will overthink a setup to death. Like, should I get 12 <laughs> feet in this tree or should I get 14 feet or should I set up on the ground or do this or do right. this or do this? You know, you have and, one of those, uh, 
I have like um, what like when I go in there and I'm in the dark or or I'm going into a spot like tree stand panic like or tree selection panic like all right do I sit in this tree or that one over there ten yards away or yeah. do I go over another another ten yards and go to a different spot <laughs> yeah and and you know yeah. like that's crucial I mean you pick. You maybe you get to a spot and you have two different options. There's been a lot of situations I've been in where one option gets a shot at a buck and the other one does not. Because yeah. bow hunting, I mean, it's a a few yards here and there can make can be the difference in you filling a tag or not that day. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> I, I'm a lot better about it now than I than I was a few years ago. Now I tr- I try to trust my instincts a little bit more. And like I said, that's the. Le- more nowadays i'm not bypassing a lot of that fresh sign i'm just sitting on it and just trying to learn something for the next hunt when i used to overthink it to death and just think like no i'm not far enough in i gotta keep i gotta keep going so it is getting better with time but that certainly is has (laughs) hurt me (laughs) excuse me in the past is just overthinking those situations like that man if you find that fresh sign near bedding and it's it. really really fresh uh sit it yeah if you got the time sure but um so then if you're like you know i know you hunt it's pretty much your like i mean it's your full-time gig right now right thp <laughs> that's that's all you guys do and huge kudos like i i gotta say like some people you see it in the comments on some of your videos sometimes, and this isn't me just, just really like trying to suck up to you or anything. But uh, I, I always, I really enjoyed the fact that you guys, like um, when you started a few, was it three years ago you started? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You all lived in a house together. You all made pretty much no money and you spent all your money on tags and you just went around right in the Smurf. <laughs> I'm in the Smurf right now. I'm sitting in it. <laughs> it's still rolling. Why aren't Why yeah. aren't you in the tundra? Um, it's back in Columbia at my fiance's house. Oh, okay. I'm in the Smurf <laughs> for the next. I'm I'm back. I'm back home in Iowa here for the next couple of weeks. And gotcha. when I'm when I'm at home, I usually run in the Smurf just because I'm like tonight, for example, I'm 55 minutes from the house where I was hunting, so. Okay. Smurf gets 33 miles to the gallon. Yeah. Yeah. So don't, it, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't look like a hunting, hunting vehicle. Right. I was so. going to say that the, the inconspicuousness of it, like Eberhardt's mommy van of death or whatever, soccer, yeah. but <laughs> you know, yeah. I remember listening to him like, yeah, no one, no one worries. No one, everyone wants to park next to the guy that's got all the logos in the jacked up truck. No one cares about my mommy van of death. <laughs> no. Somebody sees a Smurf and they're like, "Man, does that thing even start?" <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, they're not they're not worried about about me in this thing for sure. Right. Um, uh, but no, yeah, I, I I I'm I'm cruising around in it right now. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no kudos to you guys for just like breaking down and doing that because all you wanted to do was hunt full time and now and now you are now you guys aren't. Um, I I don't know. I have absolutely idea no how no idea how you guys are financially, but at least, you know, you're off the ground and running and you're making it work now. Um, but for the, for the guys who are kind of like weekend warriors, is there, I mean, is it like really a roll of the dice on 
the on the fresh sign thing like do i push back another 200 yards or do i shoot sit the fresh sign uh you were just a weekend guy if you're a weekend let we could go through a couple of scenarios here because that's what that's the best way i can explain this stuff like i said deer hunting is so situational if you're a weekend warrior and you got the whole pre-rut to hunt the whole month of october but you can only hunt weekends what's that give you about eight days yeah Say you got eight days, you got eight hunts because you can only hunt half of each day. So you can either hunt a morning or an evening. It gives you two hunts per weekend. Yep. So you got eight hunts, but you're only hunting on one property that's 500 to 1,000 acres, public land. Yep. Well, in that situation where you got one property that you're drilling in on, I think it's probably better to just stage hunt it throughout the month. Like push in, find fresh sign early in October, set up on it learn something, move further, learn something, move further as the month progresses on. Okay. Then you're going to put yourself, you're going to have that intel by the end of the month during prime time, because that's when, that's when bucks are most active through the pre-rut is at the end of October. Mm -hmm. You're going to have all that previous intel and you will not have burned anything without hunting it at that point. Got it. So, that's yeah. sort of that's sort of setting you up throughout the month to just cover your bases completely. However, yeah. a lot of people hunt multiple areas, or maybe they're hunting one big area. And if if that's your situation, I would be way more aggressive. Okay, I would just dive, dive in because if, it, if in you there. burn it, then you just go to the next one. If you burn it, yeah, you go to the next one. And that's it. You ride it off, you move on to the next. And say you got three or four spots. If you go through the whole thing and you burn it up, then you can go hunt the other three spots for the next couple of weeks and you can come back to that thing. Sure. You okay. know, uh, two weeks is a long time for a deer. Um, yeah. And a lot changes through October in a two week period. I mean, mm-hmm. you may find a doe bedding area now that ain't got a rub in it, but by. October 30th, that thing is just lit up with bucks. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That's, that's great advice. I, you know, I don't, I don't have a way to describe that, but you, you did that real well, um, for weekend guys. And I have become kind of a weekend guy. Um, I did an elk hunt. Did you get an elk this year? I thought I saw a photo. Yeah. I got one in Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful sixer. Yeah. Yeah. It was an awesome hunt. Yeah, are you guys gonna save my butt? But it was it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, no. Congratulations on that. I mean, that thing's a tank, dude. Um, Are you guys gonna release that video next year? Uh, We did it in a collaboration with the Born and Raised Outdoors guys. Oh, okay. Um, So it's on theirs. Yeah, it's gonna be on their Land of the Free project in November, and then we'll probably, I don't know, we've got like twelve or thirteen videos on that elk hunt. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Ted did an incredible job filming it. I mean, it's some of the coolest elk footage I've seen. Uh, and, uh, I'm really excited to, to put it out there, but we'll either do it over Christmas or August of next year. Okay. Yeah. We're I know. so busy with deer stuff. Oh yeah. I know. And you gotta, like, you guys put out so much content. It's, it's absurd. <laughs> um, yeah. We got it. We got a heck of a crew. Everybody's always working on videos. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, 
So anyway, uh, yeah, I burned, I burned some of my, of my time off in September. And then I, I always sure. like to save, save a week for November. So in October, I am a weekend warrior. Um, yeah. And I just thought, yeah, I just, I know a lot of people are in that same scenario, even through November, you know, they're weekend warriors and it's just, uh, just always curious how to, how other people or how other, yeah. How you'd recommend going through that. Um, yeah. Uh, the only time I would recommend not, not being mobile and maybe being aggressive to a certain degree is if you've got a really small property with maybe just like one legit bedding area on it. I wouldn't just go dive bombing in that thing every week. Um, I would play that a lot more conservatively than what, than what we do, <laughs> you know, okay. out on public land. But for the most part, that's that's another reason why we usually keep our whitetail trips like five to eight days long is because we feel like if somebody's got a week vacation and they take it, that's all the time they have in order to fill one of these tags. Yeah. So we are trying to relate to those people as best we can. Like we're going to Tennessee in early November and we're going to be there for about seven or eight days. And if we can't get it done in that period of time, then we're going to come home. Yeah. You know, okay. but that's another reason why we push ourselves to be super aggressive is because we have limited time. And I feel like the less time that you have, the more aggressive that you have to, to be. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, back in the Midwest whitetail days, I, I used to film Winky all the time. Um, me and Greg both did Anzac. Uh, and he's got, or he had, I guess he just sold his farm, but he had about a thousand acres or so, but he, he would hunt that thing systematically for the entirety of the fall and pick specific deer, you know? And, uh, I learned a lot watching that happen for several years, but even on a tremendously good property in Southern Iowa, he was having to hunt like 40, 50, 60 days. I mean, he hunts every day, you know, in order to kill one of those bucks. Yeah. Um, a lot of folks though, they may just have a weekend, like what you're talking about, or they may have, they may only have a day, one day a week when they can jet out of work early to catch a cold front or something like that. Mm -hmm. So number one, I think people need to have realistic expectations and goals set forth for themselves, you know, on a, on a particular area. That's another reason why we're opportunistic, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. But number two, if you sit back too much and you only have a limited number of times when you can hunt, like say you're getting nighttime trail camera pictures of a buck that you want to shoot and you're sitting over that camera because you're afraid of blowing that deer off your property. Well, like you mentioned earlier, there's a real good chance if they're nighttime pictures that that deer isn't bedding anywhere close to that camera. Um, yeah. And that that's just general advice. But if you're if you're hunting near that thing and you're trying to kill this buck that's quote unquote nocturnal, but the thing's bedding 400 yards away, then you're going to be completely out of the game. Most of the time mm -hmm. you're you're basically waiting for him to make a mistake. But if you only have a couple of days to hunt, the odds of him making the mistake on the days that you can hunt are really, really slim. So I feel like you've got to be in, you've got to be pushing the envelope. You got to be getting in there right there with, with the deer where they're living during the day if you're going to have a chance. Yeah. Especially on a limited schedule. 
Okay. No, I may. Yeah. I, I've, I wholeheartedly agree. And otherwise, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you go through your whole season and, and all you can show your buddies at the end is, well, here's the pictures of them on trail camera. <laughs> right. And I was, I was talking to somebody earlier and I said, I, I remember saying I got, I got sick of just nighttime trail camera pictures real quick. I wanted to see them. Yep. And that's when you really start oh, yeah. like pushing the envelope. And, and so what you, you fail, like you said earlier, you know, two weeks is a long time for deer. So you go in there yeah. and you bust them out. Oh man. What? Like some people think it's just toast and some people stress that too. Like you can't bust them or else they're gone for forever and they'll never come back ever. And I yeah, wholeheartedly that's disagree. Usually not the case. Yeah. Um, usually not the case. <laughs> Yeah, especially if it's the first time you've ever busted them and they're four years old and it's the first time you've ever gone in there. Like they've probably lived there their whole life and this is the first time you mess with them. That, I mean, they're they're probably going to stick around. Um, right. But uh, but anyway, moving moving on from, from the pre-rut, I know we're coming up, we're getting close to an hour here. So I want to get into the rut. Um, yeah. During the rut, so pre-rut mainly we're looking at we're looking at scrapes and aggressive rubs outside of bedding areas and systematically working our way in, or we're just getting in there hot and heavy if we if we have limited time. If um if moving on to the rut, are your tactics changing at all, or are you yeah. really kind of still hunting those scrapes? No, the tactics are definitely changing once you get into the rut. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm. I'm a big fan of mobile hunting, being able to bounce around all times of the year, uh, to bounce around to that hot sign and so on and so forth. But as you get into the rut, uh, the does become much more important. And what we're searching for past Halloween is a hot doe. That that's the ideal scenario. So okay. we're moving, trying to find that. Either observe it um, or bump deer that are with a hot doe, whatever. There's a good chance, and this becomes more and more uh, prevalent as it gets towards the middle of the rut in like mid-November. I can't tell you how many times I've went two miles deep into a public piece to hunt a bedding area that I had my heart set on on November 15th to walk back out and see a giant buck with a doe a hundred yards from the Smurf. <laughs> I mean, that has happened over and over Dude, and over. I had a, uh, I had a friend come all the way from Australia and he was, he was guiding. He was, he was a fish fishing guide up in Canada. He came down to spend four days with me, um, whitetail hunting. And we went back, just like you were saying, like two miles. And we sat in this area that was just loaded with rubs. Um, great crossing on a creek. Like, it just looked great. Didn't see a deer. Walk back out to the truck. One of the biggest bucks I've ever seen is standing 70 yards from the truck. Yep. <laughs> it's like, what yep. the hell? <laughs> yeah. And the best advice I could give anybody um, for that type of scenario is just to keep moving until you find them when they're in the rut and a big mature buck is with a doe, they, their guard is down. I mean, even if you spook them, they're going to run a little ways and then they're going to stop and can, and continue carrying on with what they're doing. 
Like they're gonna they're gonna get away from the danger, run a few hundred yards, then stop, go right back to rutting. And usually, the rest of the bucks are gonna find them. You know, they might not find them within ten minutes, but they might find them within a day or so. So that's that's yeah. kind of the difference um, in the mobile aspect. Like in the pre-rut, it is way more sign-driven for us. And uh, then as we get into the rut, we're looking for that specific scenario a lot of the time where we get into a bedding area that's got a couple hot does in it and uh, there's bucks just running wild around the thing. So so if you like, if you go somewhere in the morning and say it gets light at seven and you ain't seeing anything by about like 10, 1030, are you moving? Uh, most of the time, but that's not to say that sitting in one spot doesn't work. You can find funnels, which is what everybody has heard of for years and years. Yeah. You can find rut funnels that connect two bedding areas together and you can sit on those things for hours and hours and hours and days and days and days. If you have the patience and, and that's a great way to shoot a buck in the rut. You may not see anything for two days, and then all of a sudden one comes walking through there at 10 a.m., just haphazardly, guard down, trudging right through, going to try to find a hot doe, and you shoot him at 10 yards. Yep, that certainly happens during the rut. And, And sometimes those funnels don't have a lot of deer sign in them. It's just a trail or two that, you know, a buck is walking on once every 48 hours. But if you just happen to be sitting there when he comes through there, uh, because the movement's pretty random, you know, he could get, you might, he might have just as high odds walking by that thing at 1230 in the middle of the day as he does at midnight. Um, yeah. so what that, that's a good tactic too. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's a right and wrong way to go about it. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, we're trying to find that hot dough. And if we, and if to your point, if we're sitting there and we're not into anything at all in, you know, three or four hours, we're getting down and we're cruising around and trying to find something. We're trying to find the action. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and you just like, yeah. I mean, you guys like that more aggressive style, more mobile, just, Hey, if we're not, and I, I sometimes take that approach as well. I find myself mixing between the two of sitting all day in one spot. Versus, we do the same. Yep. Yeah. Cause I mean, some days you're just like not feeling it and you're like, all right, if I'm in it, I'm in it. If I'm not, I'm not. And I need to go find where it is happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's kind of, I would say that's probably the way that I do it uh, as well. I, I have those funnel areas, those spots like that, those, the, you know, like a thermal hub or something that connects multiple bedding areas where I'll go and sit and just, there in the space for three hours not see anything and then all of a sudden a buck pops up and he's coming right through the gap you know perfect yeah uh, we've killed several of them doing that that's, that's, that's uh, definitely effective per that's um, a perfect lead-in because i have that written down here in my notes one of my favorite episodes is the one where you shoot you shoot a real nice buck and then you almost shoot a second one and in the background is the road yeah right? yeah <laughs> Um, can you explain that thermal hub concept and, and, and what that is, and then also like pull that right into that, that hunt? Yeah, that was a, that hunt was 
around the 10th of November, somewhere in there, 8th, 9th, 10th, somewhere in that, that time frame when bucks are like, you know, that's, that's their peak activity. Uh, and <clears throat> that's a thermal hub that, that connects two big drainages together and multiple ridges dumped down into that spot. So there's a lot going for it as far as um, buck movement is concerned. It's connecting multiple bedding areas in that one location. And the deer are also funneled at that road crossing to come from private to public and public to private back and forth because there's a big steep ridge that falls off right there into that little creek bottom where it's nice and flat where they can cross from one side to the other. So there's a ton of things that are going into that spot that make it work during the rut but it is without a doubt one of those locations where you could sit there for days on end and not see a thing you know one spike walks through there in two days yeah and you're like from a thermal thermal hub perspective that's just essentially like the scent from all those beds are kind of coming downhill and draining into that kind of i don't want to say ditch but like that flat flat bottom piece that you guys were sitting in right yeah like in in a hill country scenario um a thermal hub would be classified as uh as a spot that almost looks like a bicycle wheel um several ridges dumped down around it and those those ridges are like the spokes of the wheel and then at the center of that wheel is the hub which is at the bottom okay that's the thermal hub um, okay. And that's Perfect. why there's us- there's usually a lot of crossing cruising trails that come through there. Uh, sometimes they're marked up with signs, sometimes they're not. But there there is, in most cases, if it's a good one, there's going to be trails that connect those ridges. Sure. You know, one ridge may be, may be to the south of the hub, one ridge may be to the northeast. There's going to be trails that come off the point of the south ridge, that dive down through the hub, and then up the ridge on the northeast and vice versa across the board you know Mm -hmm. as you go around the wheel and that's why that spot is so good is is because there are multiple cruising trails that are connecting that hill country bedding scenario but the catch with a thermal hub is the wind because you're down low and uh, as the day winds pick up you know they get above 10 miles an hour you get wicked bad swirling down there but that's also why bucks cruise through there is because yeah. they can smell everything from up and around them. They can catch a whiff of a hot doe if she's bedded anywhere out on one of those five points that's around the rit- or around the hub. Yep. Okay. And I, I remember you mentioning that specifically in the video, which was we're in here because there is zero wind today. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So then – Seems so like those real high high pressure, super cool mornings like that, your scent just wants to hang in the air, and you have <laughs> lower odds of getting busted. <clears throat> right. So then, essentially, I mean, in that hunt, in that hunt, you got in that tree, and was it was it midday? You had that kind of buck cross the road. Uh, and it was mid morning. It was like nine o'clock. Okay. We've been sitting there for two and a half hours. Okay. Yeah, and, and you dumped them, you know, whatever that was, 25 yards or whatever. He came kind of right to you, right into that hub. And then you even yep. had another one coming after him that you almost got. Yeah, if we wouldn't have been 
celebrating and losing our minds up in the tree, uh, Ted would have got a shot at the other one probably, but he saw us up there, you know, high-fiving and stuff and took off back across the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So you, so essentially your, your main strategy during the rut is um, – is chasing those chasing those does around and also finding those those funnels or pinch points and that's kind of really what you're looking for yep and ideally the funnel or hub or pinch or whatever is going to be between two bedding areas those are the ones we like to hunt the most got it so not necessarily a funnel between a feeding area and a bedding area as much anyway okay got it yeah so kind of not really focusing any any sort of food at that point right more just on more just on does okay cool so um two questions there are two like tactical questions um calling and decoys do like can we go over what do you do you do a lot of calling do you not do do you rattle do you grunt do you snort wheeze do you do any of that stuff um depends on the situation do a do a fair amount of calling in the rut and decoying. Um, it certainly is very effective, uh, but it certainly it, it also depends upon the situation. I mean, we we won't do a lot of blind calling unless we're in a spot where it's very difficult for the deer to get downwind, okay. <laughs> because that's what a mature buck will surely do if uh, you blind call to them and they start coming into your location, they're going to swoop downwind to hear or to smell the source of that sound. And in many cases, they're going to bust you. Unless you have some sort of barrier like a river or something at your back where they can't swoop you downwind, um, that's the ideal scenario is, is calling to a buck that has to come in to bow range to see the source of the sound. Got it. And that's where decoys really, really help with calling in conjunction because you have everything right there for them. Like you can call it a buck. He can look over there, see the intruder. It's a perfectly realistic scenario for him at that point to come in there to the decoy and not necessarily have to cautiously swoop downwind of your location because he can see the source of the sound at that point. Mm. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's why you would use a decoy. Yes. Did you guys, I've, I vaguely remember an episode where you guys were hunting a piece of, a piece of public that was going to go into private the following year. And you, and it was kind of these drainages or draws yep. and you used a decoy in that scenario. Yeah, that was last fall. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I do watch some of your content. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. <laughs> um, yeah that was that was last fall that was a really small public area very wide open just a couple of little wood lots and fence rows running through it yeah and i and I, on the place but no i remember that because it was such a it was such a when because oh. you actually showed like the the satellite map of it and it was such like a unique piece it's like how do you even like i would never look at that and go yeah i'm gonna hunt that for whitetails i would look at that and go yeah oh. i'd pheasant hunt that right yeah um, yep. but anyway, I mean, you guys, you guys knew like generally that like a buck was possibly in this bedding area in that like little thicket of trees. So you kind of just set up a decoy and then did some calling and, and he came right in. 
Yeah, we, we slid in and we stage hunted that property too. That was a 300 and some acre piece. We hunted it the first night, kind of sat back a little bit off of those thicker draws. We didn't want to blow anything out <clears throat> and just wanted to kind of observe where the deer were coming out at and what they were doing. Then we pushed in further on the second day, <clears throat> observed movement again, saw a couple of bucks cruising to, towards or out of this one particular little woodlot. And then on the third day, we pushed all the way into that woodlot. We were sitting in there with those deer. I mean, we had bucks fighting around us that morning before daylight. We had does heading into the woodlot. And then we uh, looked up on the ridge above us, and there was a buck cruising down into that thing. And when he went over the lip of the ridge where we could no longer see him anymore, we rattled at him. And within about 15 minutes, he was coming into the decoy. <clears throat> And, and he didn't want to, he didn't necessarily need to get that downwind of you because he could see that source and come to it. Yeah. Like, all right, I'm going to fight right. you. Cool. Yeah. Oh, no, that makes sense. I, I, I've never, I've never been a big caller or, uh, or much of a decoy. I don't have a decoy, so I've never done it, but it's something that I would like to do just to experience it and see, see if it works or see if they just run away from me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, they've, I've had tremendously great luck with them for the amount of times that I've used them. I've probably only used a decoy maybe a dozen times ever. Okay. And uh, I think it's worked probably 40% of the time, honestly, <laughs> for bringing bucks in. Yeah. Are um, you just, now they, you guys... These are hunts in Iowa and Missouri. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing, man. If you got – if you have a semi-mature or a mature buck out there that uh, is looking for a doe and they see that decoy and you call at them, there's a good chance they're going to come over there. Okay. Are you just using one of those Montana decoys, like pop-up ones? Uh, we've been using the Reinhardt Delamo buck decoy here the okay. last couple of years, but I'm pretty sure That's they're right. in you now. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I remember you guys named that something, something very Herman. funny. Er, yeah, <laughs> Herman again. Yeah, and we used to use those big, loud, noisy Flambo decoys. Um, killed a nice buck over one of those a few years ago. Me and Zach did. Uh, that thing was so loud, packing it in the dark that morning. I remember I was just like ready to throw that thing in the ditch because it was so freaking loud. But. <laughs> It was super realistic, and we got it set up in a good spot and, and called the buck off of a doe. He came in like 300 yards across this nasty field Dang. and uh, right to the thing. Ah, uh, that's cool. So they certainly work. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so we got – I mean, I think I've, co I've covered pretty much everything that I want wanted to cover, and I got two kind of personal questions here. First one is – so I, I hunt kind of like we have a hundred, hundred acres of private ground and it's a valley with a Creek rolling through it. And we own both hillsides. Right. Yeah. And, um, the other night I was out there and I, we had North winds, but the valley runs West to East. So, um, that North winds coming over that Ridge, getting down to that bottom and just swirling around. I sat on the North hillside and my wind was coming from the Southeast, which is like totally you know, not where I wanted it to go. Right. And every five minutes it was changing. <laughs> Have you yep. ever had a scenario? One of my thoughts was to go sit in the Valley. Cause once I'm in the Valley, um, all my winds just shooting right down the Valley with the Creek. 
right? Um, yeah. Have you ever had a scenario where you sit there until it's like the last hour when everything kind of calms way down and the thermals really start kicking in and just pulling everything downhill? And then you, you just scoot right in there for the last 45 minutes. Yep, absolutely. Okay, cool. That's, that's all, a thought uh, that I had, and I've asked a few of my friends, and they're like, I don't know, never tried it. Oh, yeah. And the same goes with a morning hunt, like what we were talking about earlier in a thermal hub. Um, hunting down low, if you got a dead calm morning where your scent just kind of hangs, those areas you can get away with just about anything for the first couple hours but then once the sun gets up thermals kick in day winds pick up all get of a out. sudden your wind is going everywhere and okay. you got to get out of there you got to move you got to change your setup do something otherwise every buck that comes through there is going to smell you before you get a chance at them right okay and then so that's that's one of my personal questions the other question was smoking clothes like have you ever heard of that yeah. Yeah. I used to mess around you, with that when I was that. younger. I would, we did all kinds of stuff. We smoked clothes. We'd put pine branches in there, have a trash bag, and leave them in there. We'd put cedar limbs on them and all sorts of scent sprays and scent away gear and all that stuff. But the thing that seems to, the thing that seems to be most effective is smoking clothes. I don't have a ton of experience with it though. Okay. I got, I have a friend who's, uh, he's one of those guys that, that he'll shoot, you know, 120 inch buck and tell you it was a 180. So you yeah. never really know what to believe. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's 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 like, hey man, you got to smoke your clothes. You have to. I had three does downwind of me, shot two of them, and they never had no clue, you know. And I'm like, all right, I I somewhat believe you, but I'm not not sold, you know. So I figured out. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to to find out more information on that to see if it you know talk to some folks that have done it for years and years and see what they think yeah uh, i think it's going to be one you know, of my, some of my, my mentors growing up would the sit podcast. there and smoke cigarettes in the stand all the time or sitting <laughs> on five gallon buckets and they would kill huge bucks every year right <laughs> i've, I've seen did. that too i've yeah. seen that too um i remember so. getting into a tree on public land once being like oh man this is the spot and i got up in that tree and I look over and there was a knot in one of the branches and it had about six cigarette butts in it. <laughs> I was yeah. like, shit, <laughs> someone else found yeah. this first. There you go. <laughs> um, but, uh, but all right. Hey, Aaron, thanks so much for hopping on. Really appreciate it. It's very insightful information. Uh, if people want to find you, where can they find you at? Um, all things, the hunting public. We've got uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, Prime Video, and uh i think we're even on tiktok now you got that <laughs> fantastic i love to see to see uh zach and ted get into some dances some dance offs on oh there. yeah <laughs> yep that's on there oh that's awesome all right well hey thanks man really appreciate it and um you know we'll we'll look forward to the rest of your season and good luck man